I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's show, we'll speak with Nancy Holkamp about the use of intravitreal steroid implants for the treatment of choroidal neovascularization. Steroids exert an anti-angiogenic effect through many pathways. They cause down-regulation of VEGF. They also inhibit PDGF, or platelet-derived growth factor, also basic fibroblast growth factor. We'll hear more from Dr. Holkamp in a minute. First this. You can participate in As Seen From Here by calling our listener response lines. You can ask questions of our guests or discuss the topics yourself. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Messages left on the system may be included in future episodes of As Seen From Here. The listener response lines are in beta testing. You're supposed to hear a nice greeting welcoming you to the show. But for now, all that you'll hear is this. The person you're trying to reach is not available. Please leave a message after the beep. Go ahead and leave your message anyway. We'll still get it. All messages left on this system become the property of As Seen From Here. The full text of the release is available on asseenfromhere.com forward slash legal. Again, those numbers in the United States are area code 646-808-0231 and in the United Kingdom, 020-7558-8275. Be a part of the podcast. I'll repeat the numbers again at the end of the show. Angiogenesis is a subject of intense study. In cardiology and cardiothoracic surgery, the focus of research has been on promoting angiogenesis in order to increase perfusion to ischemic tissue. In oncology and in ophthalmology, interest is centered on blocking angiogenesis. In the eye, neovascularization occurs in the cornea, in the iris resulting in rubiotic glaucoma, in the retina, and in the choroid. As clinicians, we often encounter choroidal neovascularization, or CNV, in association with age-related macular degeneration. But CNV is also a feature of presumed ocular histoplasmosis syndrome, POHS, myopic degeneration, and angioid streaks. My guest today, Nancy Holkamp, is the first author of The Safety Profile of Long-Term High-Dose Intraocular Corticosteroid Delivery, an article appearing in the March 2005 American Journal of Ophthalmology. The study examined complications and efficacy of fluocinolone intravitreal steroid implants for the treatment of choroidal neovascularization not associated with age-related macular degeneration. I asked Dr. Holkamp to explain the design of the study. The design was a prospective, non-comparative interventional case series of patients with non-age-related subfovial choroidal neovascularization who were enrolled in a compassionate use protocol. Because they were non-age-related macular degeneration patients, they were all younger. In fact, the median age was in the mid-40s. And they tended to have small subfovial choroidal neovascular membranes that would be well-defined on fluorescein angiography and were gas type 2 membranes. 
So when you say that they were defined well, what you mean is that they were mostly classic? Yes. The CNV seen in these patients was the primary episode, or these were patients with recurrent CNV? These patients were selected because they had highly aggressive bilateral disease. In fact, a substantial number of them had already undergone multiple vitrectomy surgeries for removal of these subfoveal membranes. It's important to remember that this protocol was started before the advent of photodynamic therapy or macogen. And so there was really little to offer these patients except for thermal laser, which is not recommended for non-AMD eyes or submacular surgery, which at that point wasn't proven to be beneficial and was fought with a high recurrence rate. These patients were selected for this compassionate use protocol because they were considered to have very aggressive bilateral disease, and this was really a last-ditch effort to preserve central vision. And Nancy, what was the protocol? The protocol really began out of a desire to help these patients, and Dr. Matthew Thomas and myself obtained IND numbers from the FDA for a compassionate use protocol of selecting patients and offering the chance to have a fluocinolone implant implanted in their eye for one of two reasons. One would be at the time of submacular surgery to prevent recurrent coronal vascularization. It's well documented that the recurrence rate approaches 50% at about two years. And the second indication would be to cause regression of established CNV so that these patients underwent surgery for the sole purpose of implanting a fluocinolone implant into the eye. Why do we think that steroids are anti-angiogenic? There's a lot of literature in the basic science journals that corticosteroids exert an anti-angiogenic effect through many pathways. They cause down-regulation of VEGF. They also inhibit PDGF, or platelet-derived growth factor, also basic fibroblast growth factor, and numerous cytokines. They also have an effect on the extracellular matrix turnover, leading to endothelial cell death. And so it's, it's multi-approach that we believe corticosteroids can inhibit angiogenesis. Now the interesting thing is, is they're not really anti-angiogenic per se, they're really modulators of angiogenesis. They can decrease the angiogenic stimulus. And you mentioned in the paper, too, steroids can have an indirect effect regarding the inhibition of angiogenesis by affecting cells that release heparin growth factors and other angiogenic factors, too. It's really a, a multiple pathway mechanism for being active in angiogenesis. Are there animal models relating to the specific steroid used in this study? We use fluocinolone. There is an animal model where they use triamcinolone and it, it was found to inhibit coronal vascularization in a laser-treated model. Regarding fluocinolone, that was proven but never published. It was shown at the 1999 ARVO meeting, and fluocinolone was shown to inhibit coronal vascularization in an animal model of fibroblast growth factor-induced coronal vascularization. And for reasons I don't understand, that, that was never published. Nancy, can you describe the design of the implant? The implant is similar to Vitrocert, which has FDA approval for delivery of gancyclovir into the vitreous cavity. The implant is a polymer-based drug delivery system 
where the drug itself is compressed into tablets, which are then inserted within a silicone uh, elastomer. And this pellet is then affixed to a polyvinyl alcohol suture tab. So it's several pieces coming together to form the drug delivery system. The, the implants we used were larger than the current version that is being used in clinical trials for uveitis. Our implants were about one millimeter across in width and three millimeters long. And they required an incision in the pars plana that was six to seven millimeters wide. The implants that are currently being used are, are smaller. You mentioned in the study that some of the patients had implantation surgery by itself and some patients had implantation surgery combined with vitrectomy. What is it that determined which patients had which surgical procedure? If we felt that submacular surgery was likely to be beneficial, we would offer them submacular surgery. The characteristics for successful submacular surgery were best defined by the experience of Matthew Thomas. And the whole key was whether or not we could remove the coronal neovascularization and still leave an intact layer of RPE underneath. If an eye had had multiple surgeries or it appeared that we weren't clear that we would be able to leave subfoveal RPE, then these candidates would not be a good surgery for the combined vitrectomy and implantation of the device. So it was really the clinical characteristics of each individual patient deciding whether or not they got the implant alone or the implant combined with submacular surgery. In the study, five patients got combined surgery of removal of the coital neovascularization and implantation of the device in hopes of reducing the recurrence rate, and nine patients got an implant alone. Nancy, the main outcome measure in your study was complications related to the implant. What were the complications that you found? Well, the complications were quite significant. In fact, every eye developed an elevated intraocular pressure requiring treatment. And in fact, approximately 11 additional surgical procedures were needed for management of the glaucoma alone. Also, all of these patients were relatively young and had clear lenses at the time of enrollment into the study. And by the final follow-up, which on average was 33 months, all patients required cataract surgery for progressive nucleosclerotic and posterior capsular cataract. Right there, there, uh, there was a 200% complication rate, if you will. All patients developed elevated intraocular pressure requiring treatment, and all patients developed cataract requiring surgery. Finally, there was a third complication that I would characterize as a non-ischemic central retinal vein occlusion that appeared in four patients for reasons we don't understand. It might be related to the elevated intraocular pressure, but the signs and symptoms of non-ischemic central retinal vein occlusion improved in all four cases with removal of the implant. So we think it was causally related. We know that for patients who undergo vitrectomy, that cataracts are a common complication. Do you think that the cataracts seen in this study were a result of the vitrectomies or secondary to the implant or, or to the steroid coming out of the implant? Well, that's an excellent question. And what's important to note is that progressive nucleosclerotic cataract after vitrectomy surgery tends to occur in individuals over the age of 50. Only two of the patients in the study were over the age of 50. One was 51 and one was 52. So it's not like we were operating on 60 and 70-year-old patients for whom we really would expect to see progressive nucleosclerotic cataract within two years. The other thing that's important to mention is that not every patient got a vitrectomy. 
and not every patient had a history of vitrectomy surgery. So there were eyes that only received an implant without vitrectomy surgery that went on to develop progressive cataract. So I think it probably is related to the fluocinolone acetonide implant device and not the fact that they had vitrectomy surgery. Can you tell me what the secondary outcome measures were? Secondary outcome measure was visual acuity. Now, this was a very small trial of only 14 eyes, and so it's difficult to draw any conclusions about visual acuity. But these were all patients with sight-threatening subfovial disease that had proven to be highly aggressive in either the fellow eye or this eye. And it's quite remarkable but that a substantial number of patients ended the study with 20-40 visual acuity or better. In fact, 10 patients had visual acuity of at least 2060 or better, and only four patients had vision of 2100 or worse. In 10 of the 14 eyes, we were able to preserve relatively good central vision despite 200% complication rate in multiple surgical procedures. What was the experience with choroidal neovascularization in these patients? Did it involute? Did it recur? It responded to the fluocinolone acetonide implants in 10 of 14 patients. There were two different uh, strengths of implant. One was a 2 milligram implant and one was a 6 milligram implant. And we found that there was control of the coronal neovascularization in all eyes receiving the 6 milligram implant, but in four of the eight eyes receiving the 2 milligram implant, there was recurrent coronal neovascularization. So overall, the disease was controlled in 10 of 14 eyes. Had there been previous work done with this implant in a different clinical setting other than looking at choroidal neovascularization? Yes. In fact, the implant has been studied extensively for treatment of uveitis. Glenn Jaffe has done a lot of the groundwork, and in fact, his research prompted a uh, national randomized prospective clinical trial of fluocinolone acetonide implants in treatment of uveitis. And I believe that that study is still ongoing, but preliminary results show that it's been very effective in controlling the uveitis and that uveitic patients tend to have less problems with intraocular pressure and uveitic patients tend to already have had their cataracts removed because uveitis is cataractogenic. It, it seems to have a better safety profile and better efficacy in uveitis patients, but again, that trial has not yet been completed to my knowledge. Can you speculate why the intraocular pressures were less of an issue with the uveitis patients than they were in the patients in, in this study? If I were to speculate, I would say that severe uveitis, and, and these patients enrolled in this trial had severe uveitis, have probably lost the ability in their ciliary body to produce sufficient aqueous to cause an elevated intraocular pressure. They probably have a burned-out ciliary body or a slightly fibrosed or inactive ciliary body. So I, I don't think that these are, are typical or normal eyes. I think if you end up placing a corticosteroid into a relatively healthy eye, you're going to have pressure problems. Would you speculate that lowering the steroid dose in the implant would prevent the, the glaucoma or the cataracts that you saw in the patients in this study? Well, that's really the issue that needs to be explored, whether or not you can lower the dose of fluocinolone or any other corticosteroid and still have a desirable biologic effect? Or does the advantages of the corticosteroid go hand in hand with the side effects and complications? It's not clear that those can be separated. 
It's true. Six milligram implants and two milligram implants were chosen for this small initial trial and it proved to have a very high complication rate. And so wisely, the company that makes these implants has has chosen to study a lower dose implant. In fact, they now use a 0.5 milligram implant. We had the opportunity to implant that in the fellow eye of one of our patients in this study. Interestingly, it provided relatively good control of his coronal vascularization and with approximately three years of follow-up, he still sees well in that eye without active disease. However, at month 25, which means it would not have shown up in a two-year study, at month 25, he developed glaucoma, and he also subsequently required cataract surgery. So it's, it's likely that a dose of 0.5 milligrams fluocinolone acetonide still is too high to avoid complications, and yet we feel it's still biologically active in cases of non-age-related macular degeneration. Having published this study, do you think that there's a clinical role for this procedure? Fluocinolone implants may find a place in treating severe uveitis because for these patients there are very few treatment options. And the resolution of inflammation is, is so significant that patients are generally willing to accept treatable complications such as glaucoma or cataract in order to see better. And I think that the fluocinolone acetonide implant will have an accepted role in treating uveitis assuming that the clinical trial goes well and it meets FDA approval. However, for treating choroidal neovascularization or treating diabetes, there's definitely a biologic effect. I think it's a positive biological effect, but whether the trade-off for, for patients with macular degeneration or diabetes is worth it remains to be seen. And it may be that other approaches, such as anti-VEGF therapy or other types of modulators of angiogenesis, or vascular leakage are going to have a safer profile and be more efficacious. Most likely, the field will move on to other treatments for coronal neovascularization. Now, having said that, I was really struck in this study by the fact that six patients refused to have the implant explanted. Absolutely, that's very striking because they realized that the implant was controlling their very site-threatening disease of subfolvial coronal neovascularization, and they preferred to have glaucoma surgery and have cataract surgery and do whatever it took to keep the implant in their eye. And so I think that the implants are biologically active, at least in this small group of patients with non-AMD-related coronal neovascularization, but this really ended up being like a FDA phase one safety and feasibility trial, and the safety profile was strikingly poor. And it remains to be seen whether or not patients and their doctors will be willing to accept the complications for potential benefit. Of the 14 patients of the study, explantation was performed in eight, and six patients said that they did not want the implants taken out. Does that mean that explantation was recommended for all 14 patients? Yes. We realized that the implants were creating recognizable problems. And rather than subject someone to trabeculectomy or shunt for glaucoma, it was suggested that they might want to have their implant removed. And this is when patients really spoke up and said, I'd rather have glaucoma filtering surgery and keep the implant. In thinking about this study, I think it showed two important things. 
and it's unique for a single study to, to have two things to say. But the first was using steroids, even high-dose steroids, for controlling choroidal neovascularization. And it was a small study. They were non-AMDIs, and yet the steroids definitely had a biologic effect. This is of interest because people have been trying to use corticosteroids as monotherapy or steroid-like agents as monotherapy for choroidal neovascularization, and there may be a role for that. But it also speaks to using corticosteroids as uh, an adjuvant for other therapies and uh, really kind of lays uh, a foundation for using corticosteroids with photodynamic therapy or even macogen. So it kind of uh, ushered in this whole concept of, of using corticosteroids for treating coronal nevascularization. The second thing that I thought was very important about this paper is it shows the effects of long-term delivery of corticosteroids to the eye. And it shows that we are not going to be unique in medicine and be able to get the benefits of corticosteroids without the side effects and complications. We're no different than dermatologists or rheumatologists who have to use these agents sparingly because they're powerful, but they have serious side effects. And it should come as no surprise to anyone that every patient in this study develops glaucoma and cataract because we've known for a long time corticosteroids cause glaucoma and cataract. And the real question is, can we use these agents sparingly to have a biologic effect and minimize the potential complications? And if not, are we willing to deal with the complications to use this as a therapeutic approach? Nancy, thank you very much. Sure. Nancy Holkamp is Associate Professor of Clinical Ophthalmology in the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the Washington University School of Medicine. Her article, The Safety Profile of Long-Term High-Dose Intraocular Corticosteroid Delivery, appears in the March 2005 American Journal of Ophthalmology. Do you have any questions for Nancy Holkamp? Or would you like to add anything to the conversation? Please call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. Listeners using Skype can Skype JYoungMD. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.